0: All right, good morning, Christ Community Church. My name is Robbie Baxter. I'm the assistant pastor here. It's my privilege to be bringing the word for us this morning. If you would, be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 13 through 23 this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. And let's hear this, the word of God to us, his people, this morning. Now when they, they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that, it was, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I have just a question, one question for us as we begin to look at our text this morning. Where did you turn to for hope during the low points of this year, and what was the result Where did you turn to for hope during the low points of this year and what was the result? A few weeks ago, I was talking with a friend of mine and my friend said, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to remember that God is in control. I'm trying to remember that Jesus is the King. I'm trying to remember that he holds all things in his hand. I'm trying to remember that he is sovereign and powerful and good, but I'm anxious and I'm scared and it just isn't working. I wonder if you have felt like that at various times during this year. And I wonder how you might respond to my friend or to your own heart or to your friends who might feel like he did. People who are trying to remember God's power and God's goodness and God's sovereign control, trying to fill their hearts with the affection that they want to feel for these things, the confidence that comes from knowing they are true, but who are anxious and are scared and who feel like it just isn't working. Well, in this Advent season, we are seeking to grow in our capacity to recognize and to rejoice in the hope-filled reality that our rescuing King has come. And we've seen in the opening pages of Matthew's Gospel that God's plan to bring redemption to his people began, it always had began, with Jesus, with Jesus, the Messiah rescuing his people from their sins. And we've seen that he plans to make all things new through Jesus, our Messiah, And we've seen also that he calls the least likely and most undeserving of people to share in this joyful, hope-filled redemption. This is an astounding truth. May we never grow weary of hearing these wonderful things. And yet, if the Advent story were simply a story of, of unbroken triumph, if the story never met with a single challenge or difficulty, if, the, if in Advent we were simply told a story about hope and never heard of any danger, it wouldn't really strike us as true to life, would it? Well, the story of Advent is true to life. It really did happen, and because it really did happen, we have this strange and frightening portion of Matthew's second chapter. In this section of Matthew, we see that Jesus really did enter into our broken sinful world full of anxieties and opposition and scares of times when evil seems to have the upper hand of times when god's happy promises seem veiled and under attack and by patiently submitting to the father's will to these trials in obedience to all that god had given him jesus really did overcome all this evil and he promises to bring his people home so that's the key truth for us from this section of matthew this morning key truth is Jesus has come as the despised servant of the Lord to overcome evil and bring his people home. Now, we see this in three movements of the story as it's being told in this section of Matthew. Three movements summed up in each case by Matthew's quoting of an Old Testament prophet to clue us in to this is what to the fact that this is what God has really always been ex- uh, pre- preparing his people to expect the Messiah would be like. So three movements of the story summed up in each case by a quotation of an Old Testament prophet that clues us in to the fact that God has been preparing us to expect that the Messiah would be like this. So see the first movement. This is in verses 13 through 15. The first movement is out of Egypt. Now we see from these opening verses that no sooner... Had Jesus been born into our world, no sooner than we may suppose the angels had delivered their wonderful message to the shepherds in the field, no sooner had the magi from the east delivered their precious gifts than the kingdom of darkness, sensing the threat that this newborn king represented to its evil empire, roused its wicked servants with orders to snuff out his light. And so the black-hearted King Herod a man, by the way, despised and really feared by his own people for his cruelty, Uh, and finding that his feigned interest in coming to worship the baby Jesus hadn't tricked God, hatched a plan to destroy him. And he sent his henchmen on a mission to bathe the region of Bethlehem in the blood of its babies. Now, let's pause for a minute and recognize that Matthew's straightforward narration of these facts, it's, it's not intended to desensitize us to the horror of what's going on here. Really, it rather starkly exposes the malice and the violence that brought forth this wicked evil and the tragedy and pain that it produced. And let us notice that this event marked the very beginning of Jesus' experience of earthly life. You You know, if ever an event testified that this world stands in need of a rescuing king, surely this is it. And here we find Jesus right in the middle of it. And now let's be clear in our minds, there is no greater evil than the evil of trying to snuff out heaven sent redemption. In the category of human crime, what Herod did here probably only stands below the evil of putting Jesus on the cross and Judas's betrayal of Jesus in terms of its sinfulness. So we would surely expect a stark and immediate divine response, right? an an unmistakable display of divine retaliatory power. And although we do here see God's providential care and divine power for the protection of Joseph and Mary and Jesus, it's rather in the quiet escape by night to Egypt than in a great and open display of retribution. And we can well imagine, I'm sure, Mary carrying the infant Jesus on the road south to Egypt Anxious and worried, trying to remember the message that the angel Gabriel had given to her. Trying to remember that this little baby would occupy the throne of his father David. Trying to remember all the faithfulness of God which had been so richly shown to his people and even to her. And trying to remember all these things and still struggling to see how it all works out. And yet there was Jesus right in the middle of it. And we see that after a time of patient waiting... Herod died, and God called this little family back out of Egypt so that, Matthew tells us, what was spoken by the prophet Hosea might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. So we see here that Jesus was to be a new kind of Israel, once called out of that land of darkness before by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, and now called out Of the land of refuge in a quieter way finally to put an end to evil by his faithful obedience to all of his father's will we find jesus right in the middle of it so that's the first movement out of egypt we come to the second movement this is verses 16 through 18 out of exile well the baby jesus had escaped herod's slaughter the other babies in and around bethlehem had not and i think it would be hard for us to fully Adequ- adequately capture with language the grief and helplessness those parents must have surely felt. Perhaps they were trying to remember God's promises that death is not the final word. Perhaps they were trying to remember his sovereign goodness, but they were afraid and grieving, and it just didn't work. And so Matthew chose Jeremiah 31:15 to remind us that something important here was being fulfilled. Now, it's important for us to kind of recognize some of this is, is background, so we need to kind of be clued into what's going on. Ramah was in the neighborhood of Bethlehem. It was the place where Rachel, the Israelite patriarch Jacob's most beloved wife, was buried. And in Jeremiah's day, it was the, one of the centers where the Babylonian exile of Judah began. And so, the Jeremiah passage vividly portrays the sense of loss experienced as the southern kingdom of Judah followed the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. It's, it's so deep, that, that sense of loss, that Rachel is here figuratively pictured as weeping for the loss of her children, the, the tribes of Israel. The kingdom of darkness in Jeremiah's day seemed to have its upper hand in Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. And it appears in Herod's day to have had its upper hand with the slaughter of the babies of Bethlehem. Rachel is weeping for her children. And yet, with this passage, Matthew draws our attention to something even deeper than this. For in the verses before Jeremiah 31 15, we read, He who scattered Israel will gather them, for the Lord will ransom Jacob. I will turn their mourning into gladness. And immediately after 3115, we read, This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will surely be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. After this, this almost unbelievable sense of loss, this, this deep grief, this wondering, how can the good promises of God that He's given to us be be true? We, we we've trusted in God's faithfulness, and yet here is this. This experience of exile, how can all of this be true, and God's promise of his faithfulness, of his redemptive love and mercy, come through right in the middle of Jeremiah 31. And so Matthew is cluing us in that something deeper is going on than merely Herod gaining the upper hand. Something as deeper is going on than the slaughter of Bethlehem's babies, as tragic and as sorrowful as that is. The Babylonian exile seemed to utterly dash the hopes of the great promises of God to the people of Israel. And perhaps they tried to remember God's sovereign care, but it just wasn't working. And so God gave them a renewed promise. The exile was not the end of the story. And now, centuries later, the escape of the baby Jesus from destruction and his return from exile points to the fuller fulfillment of these confident promises. As as Knox Chamberlain, a New Testament scholar, points out, this event injects new life into all the promises to the house of David. Now that God has rescued the young Messiah from death, there is renewed hope that these promises will indeed be fulfilled. So Matthew is cluing us in to recognize in the the fact that Rachel is weeping for her children in this horrible slaughter of Bethlehem's babies, there is hope because the Messiah has escaped this death And the promises that God once gave Israel, that their children will return to the land, that death is not the end of the story, are in the process of being fulfilled. The king is on the move. And when we are anxious and scared, and trying to remember just doesn't seem to be working, Jesus is with us. Hear how John Calvin helpfully puts it. I I particularly appreciated this, this quote as I was preparing this sermon this week. He says this, We must always bear in mind the purpose of God in training his Son from the commencement under the discipline of the cross, because this was the way in which he was to redeem his church. He bore our infirmities and was exposed to dangers and to fears that he might deliver his church from them by his divine power and might bestow upon it everlasting peace. Listen to this. His danger was our safety. His fear was our confidence. Not that he ever in his life felt alarm, but as he was surrounded on every hand by the fear of Joseph and Mary, he may be justly said to have taken upon himself our fears that he might procure for us assured confidence. And again, it's the confidence that comes from knowing that Jesus is with us. He has experienced these things with us. He has borne these things in patient obedience to his Father's redemptive will. He has promised to bring us home. So, out of exile, that's the second movement of our story. We come to the third. This is in verses 19 through 23, into Nazareth. Now, Matthew tells us that Joseph and his family resided in Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, whenever Matthew quotes a, a specific prophetic utterance from the Old Testament, he introduces the quote by saying something like, this was done so that what was spoken by the prophet, singular, might be fulfilled. But now he introduces this particular fulfillment by saying, so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. And notice that this difference is not accidental, and it is important. For you will not find an Old Testament prophet who says anything about Jesus being called a Nazarene. You would flip through your Old Testament in vain to try to find a specific prophecy that, that, that says that. But you will find the whole Old Testament uh, prophetic witness pointing to the fact that Jesus would bear the scorn and contempt that came from being from a little, out-of-the-way, bummed-out, loser town like Nazareth. So it is like Matthew is saying, this fulfills what we know the entire testimony of all the Old Testament prophets is pointing us to. Jesus would be despised. And indeed, particularly in the suffering servant passages of Isaiah, we find that this is a dominant theme of Old Testament messianic prophecy. D.A. Carson helpfully puts it this way. He says, Nazareth was a despised place, even to other Galileans. Here Jesus grew up, Not as Jesus the Bethlehemite, with its Davidic overtones, but as Jesus the Nazarene, with all the opprobrium of the sneer. When Christians were referred to in Acts as the Nazarene sect, the expression was meant to hurt. First century Christian readers of Matthew who had tasted their share of scorn would have quickly caught Matthew's point. He is not saying that a particular Old Testament prophet foretold that the Messiah would live in Nazareth. He is saying that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would be despised. Our rescuing king made his home in Nazareth. The one who came to bear the scorn and sin of the world made his home in Nazareth. The one who came into our world to rid it finally of evil, to atone for the sin of his people, to shine like a white hot incandescent light into this world of darkness, to topple the kingdom of sin and wickedness, to expose the emptiness of its lies, to pull to shreds the most brutal and complicated of conspiracies, to bring about abundant and eternal life and joy inexpressible, this king made his home in Nazareth. You know, you know, what a rebuke this is to all of us who have said this year, well, you know, it takes a little bit of ego to be an effective leader. It takes a little bit of ego to get things done. No, but the true king made his home in Nazareth. He submitted to the humiliation and the scorn of the world, and by his obedience to his father's will, he overcame the world. And when the proud and the boastful lie in their graves... All the accomplishments that they achieved in this world will turn to ash, and Jesus will still reign. What a rebuke this is to all of us who put our trust and our confidence in those who do not follow in the way of Jesus, who do not bear the, the scorn and contempt of this world in patient obedience to his Father's will. Yet this is what Jesus did, and by this obedience he overcame And what an encouragement this is to all of us this year who tried to remember God's goodness, His power, and His faithfulness, and found sometimes that it just didn't work. Jesus made His home in Nazareth. It was not with outward pomp and circumstance that He began His earthly life, not with great public displays of divine power, not with boasts, and not with the best of this world. It was as the despised servant of the Lord that He entered into our world. So, three movements of our story. Out of Egypt, out of exile, into Nazareth. And one theme, Jesus came into the thick of our sinful fallen world and Jesus has overcome. Jesus the Nazarene. So here's the application of this for us this Advent season. Jesus is with us in the rough and the tumble of life. He is the answer to our own hearts and to the hearts of our friends and our families, all those we love and care about when they cry out, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to remember, but it just isn't working. Jesus is with us. You know, we're not looking for a principle to comfort us. We're not looking for merely a vague idea to cheer us up with mental fortitude, That's not what we're after, we're not looking for vague disconnected ideas about hope that are just abstract and floating out there in the ether, we're looking for a man. We're looking for Emmanuel, we're looking for God with us, we're looking for Jesus. And through this story, Jesus says to us now, I've been there, I've borne the contempt and the scorn of this world, I know the hurts and the stings of this life, I know the anxieties, I know the fear, I know what that is like. Fear not, I am with you and I will bring you home. Would we as God's people this Advent season, as we seek to grow in our capacity to recognize and to rejoice in this hope-filled reality, not letting the truths of Christmas slide us by, not letting these things just be something that we have grown so familiar with and so comfortable with that we cease to recognize their power. May we as Christians engage the big issues of life, engage our weekly schedules, engage our own hearts and the hearts of our friends and neighbors not looking for a principle, mainly, not looking for merely doctrine that fills our heads with knowledge but has no impact on our hearts or the way that we live, not looking for vague, abstract ideas that are just floating out there in the ether. May we be people who are looking to Jesus, who are keeping Him at the center of our thoughts and affections, who are seeking more and more to be shaped by what He has done for us, not our own ideas, not the the current moods that are out there in the culture, but upon what He has done, the things that He has borne and suffered for His people, all that He has gone through in patient obedience to His Father's will, may we put Him at the center. And when we are confused, when we are anxious, when we are scared, and when it just doesn't seem to be working to remember all these good things, may we remember that He is with us. May we look to Him. May we find our comfort in Him and all that He has done, for He has promised to bring us home. May we not boast in the empty promises of this world. May we not seek to fill our hearts with the comforts that come from the boastful or the proud or the arrogant. May we, may we remember that it is Jesus in humiliation and scorn and patient obedience to his Father's will who overcame evil and now calls us to follow after him in the road of the cross, knowing that death is not the end of the story, that he has overcome evil, He will come again to make all things new. He's invited the the most undeserving and the least likely to share in this wonderful joy. May we put him at the center. That is how we will avoid letting the truths of Christmas pass us by, by putting Jesus at the center of our hearts and affections. Because he is overcome, he is with us, and he promises to bring us home. So Matthew 2 verses 13 through 23 teach us that Jesus has come as the despised servant of the Lord to overcome evil and to bring his people home. We be people this Advent season who are shaped and formed by this astounding truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you as people who, Lord, even this year have had many experiences of times when we tried to remember your goodness and it just didn't seem to be working. And so Lord, we ask that we would be people who are formed and shaped by the story that you have told us this morning from Matthew chapter two, verses 13 through 23. Lord, would we see Jesus and all that he has borne for us as people at the center of our hearts and minds and affections. Lord, would we not clamor for merely ideas or principles or ideas which are current in our culture or hopes that are just disconnected from who you are in Christ. But Lord, instead, may we see Jesus. May we put him at the center of our hopes and affections. Lord, may we remember that he is the one who has borne these things on our behalf in obedience to your will so that we would be brought home to you in his name. And Lord, would that fill our hearts and minds with deep confidence. Would we remember that he bore these things so that we would have the opportunity not to fear so that we would be filled with confidence in all that you are doing for us in him. So that we would be patient in the trials that you bring our, our way, joyful in even in these circumstances and filled with hope because of all that you've done for us in Jesus. And Lord, may that affect the way that we celebrate Advent this year. Lord, we long to be people who are not merely letting this season with its days that are busy and filled with many things to do just pass us by. We are longing to be formed and shaped by the Advent story, Lord, would we, would we be people who recognize it is by putting Jesus at the center that we will get the most out of the Christmas story. And that may, may that overflow in joy in our own homes, in our own hearts, and outward to our neighbors, so that you would get the glory and we would get the benefit. And we ask it all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.